I invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. First Corinthians comes right after the book of Romans, and logically enough, before Second Corinthians. We're going to be in chapter 2 this morning. In fact, we're going to cover the whole chapter this morning, and we'll see what the Lord has to say to us through his word. I'll read all 16 verses to begin. I'm reading from the ESV. And I, when I came to you, brothers, and when Paul uses brothers there, he means brothers and sisters, speaking to the whole church. When I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. We impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Sometimes cross-cultural communication can be tricky. Interpreting between two languages can bring unique challenges. This proved to be true for one Japanese interpreter of President Jimmy Carter. In 1981, President Carter was preparing to deliver a speech at a Japanese college, and he wanted to start his speech with a joke, with a story, just to break the ice. The challenge for the interpreter was that he had no idea how to make that joke make sense in Japanese. It didn't translate well. 
During the speech, President Carter delivered the joke through the interpreter, and Carter was surprised at how few words the interpreter used and how quickly the punchline landed, and the Japanese audience laughed. So after backstage, he talked to the interpreter, and he tried to push him. He said, what did you say to get that response? And the interpreter was shy at first, but after a little bit of more prodding, he said, President Carter told a funny story. Everyone must laugh. And right on cue. <laughs> Communicating across cultures can bring with it unique challenges, and that is particularly true when the cultures you are crossing and communicating between are heaven and earth. There is a wide gap there, and if you're trying to do cross-cultural communication, words of God to earthly people, there can be a challenge, there's an obstacle to overcome. This chapter, chapter 2, these words of Paul, are all about how that is accomplished, how the wisdom of God is made known to earthly people. It's helpful to note, as we've noted throughout or in the beginning of this sermon series, that Paul is speaking against the backdrop of professional rhetoricians in Corinth. In Corinth, there are professional speakers who are paid to speak eloquently about all manner of topics and subjects. They would travel to towns and try to establish themselves as paid speakers and to kind of set up a residence like pop stars do in Las Vegas, right? Britney Spears and Lady Gaga. They'll establish residency there and you can come and visit them and hear them perform. Speakers would do the same thing in Corinth. They would establish residency and they would be known and, and paid for by people and they would speak at banquets and parties about all sorts of life topics and how to get ahead in life and how to be wise in the world. Better, more eloquent speakers they were, the more they were in demand and the more they were paid and the more it was an honor to have them in your presence. And in that culture, there was a cultural expectation that any speaker who was speaking was going to operate by the same means, speaking eloquent words of wisdom and receiving pay for it and patronage by certain people, and there would be status associated with that. So when the church comes to Corinth, when people are converted, they are in the midst of that culture, and they'll carry some of that expectation with Paul. They'll want Paul to be one of those speakers who speaks well and eloquently by human wisdom and addresses all sorts of things, like the professional rhetoricians. They might even have an evangelistic heart behind that. Paul, show that you fit with the ways of this world, that people will um, take to this kind of message and accept it and listen and approve of what you have to say. So be like them. And what Paul's doing in chapter 2 and throughout the beginning of this letter is trying to correct their thinking about wisdom, about the message of God, and about how it's communicated. He will argue that human eloquence and wisdom is not what will win the day. It's not what will be effective for communicating the truth of Jesus Christ and effecting transformation in people. Instead, Paul will argue that the wisdom of the cross must be communicated by the power of the Spirit. I'll repeat that because that's kind of my main idea for this morning. I think it sums up the whole message of this chapter. The wisdom of the cross must be communicated by the power of the Spirit. 
If, we're going to, if we are to communicate the gospel of Jesus Christ, if we're to proclaim it, and if it's going to be received, then in all of that, it must be dependent upon the Holy Spirit and his power and not on human wisdom or craft. Paul here is trying to retrain the Corinthians that they might seek the wisdom and power of the Holy Spirit and not rely on their own abilities or their own eloquence. As we go through this text, we'll see uh, three aspects of how the wisdom of the Spirit works and moves and must work in order for this cross-cultural communication to happen. We'll break down the text in three sections, three aspects of how wisdom must be passed on. We'll learn how wisdom must be proclaimed, how wisdom must be revealed, and how wisdom must be received. How wisdom must be proclaimed, revealed, and received. In any communication, there is a speaker, there's a message, and there's a receiver. And Paul will speak to all three of those facets and say, this has to be done by the Spirit. The wisdom of the cross must be communicated by the power of the Spirit. First, let's consider how wisdom must be proclaimed. Paul's going to share his God-given convictions as to how wisdom must be proclaimed in verses 1 through 5. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So Paul begins by talking about the, the content of his speech, the content of his message, and what he is doing. He says, when I came to you, I, I came proclaiming not lofty speech. I came proclaiming to you the testimony of God. That word testimony is a debated word there. Just so you know, right off the start, we have a debate and argument about what the text says. It could be testimony, or it could be mystery. Testimony or witness is the Greek word martyrion. Mystery is the Greek word mysterion. And different manuscripts, different records and scrolls of of the text have different words. Nobody is sure exactly which one it's supposed to be. Testimony, witness, or mystery. I lean towards mystery. That Paul is saying, I came proclaiming the mystery of God. And I think there's a reason it fits with the context What he's saying is there is a mysterious thing here, a secret that is now revealed. Paul will use that word mystery several places throughout the New Testament in his letters, and it's always in reference to the mystery of the gospel, which was hidden before. In the Old Testament, it wasn't clearly revealed, but now in Jesus Christ, it has been revealed for all to see. There's a mystery there. It's a plan of salvation that God was always working about and causing to come to happen, And it was hidden. Angels longed to look into this, right? We read in scripture. They longed to see what is this all about? A mystery of how God would save the world. And then that mystery is revealed. The secret is revealed in Jesus Christ. This plan of salvation that God's own son would come and take on the likeness of man and be crucified, die on the cross for people's sins and be resurrected and ascend to heaven and rule in glory and honor and power. All of that, the, the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ that he died for sinners and we can live in him. That was something all the Old Testament was looking to, 
but it was shrouded and then in Jesus Christ revealed. And that is the content of Paul's speech, the mystery that has now been made known. And he proclaims that. When he uses that word proclaim, it is a verbal announcement, a speech that isn't just limited to preaching on a Sunday morning. It includes that. But it could be conversation, dialogue, teaching, interaction, anywhere where you might announce verbally with your mouth the good news of the gospel. So this doesn't just apply to preachers. This is for anyone who would speak the gospel and want to speak it to somebody to make it known. So this applies to all of us, what Paul's going to say. He says, I'm not going to speak with lofty speech or wisdom. My goal is not to gain applause for myself by my incredible words and my immaculate vocabulary. That's not Paul's goal. He doesn't want to use the same tools as others. He has a simple message and a simple content, and he sticks to it. His content is simply this, Jesus Christ and him crucified. Notice Paul says, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. It was a conscious decision. This was a choice that Paul made. There are all sorts of topics under the sun that I could speak to. This is my message. The cross of Christ. It all revolves around this. It's not that Paul wasn't educated. It's not that Paul couldn't speak to other things. But Paul was going to speak about everything through the lens of the cross of Christ. That was his message. And that takes discipline to stick to that message. If you're an educated person and a speaker a leader, a teacher in front of other people like Paul was. There might be all sorts of temptation to speak to all sorts of things and pretend to be an expert in all sorts of things. This is a great temptation of a pastor to think he knows everything about everything because people ask about everything. And you could use the phrase to get over our skis a little bit, pretending to be an expert in all such things instead of just sticking to the message that was given. This can be a temptation of the church to take up every cause under the sun because the world demands that we have an answer so we get off track speaking to all sorts of things that aren't our area and forget the commissioning that we have under Jesus Christ to proclaim the cross and the good news. That is our message it doesn't mean do we speak to nothing of the world, but it means we speak to everything through that lens. That is the primary message. Whatever we're talking about, whether it be race or ethnicity or sexuality or finances or marriage, whatever it is, as we speak to those things, we always do throw through the lens of Jesus Christ and him crucified because that is the center of everything. And that's what Paul is saying here. That is how he communicates. That's what he communicates. And it will affect his delivery even. The, the way he speaks will be affected by the content that he speaks, and they have to match. He will speak in such a way that it is fitting with Jesus Christ and him crucified, and by that he means fear and trembling. Weakness. He may be weak because he was beaten by authorities, but he comes in weakness because he knows he's speaking of the things of God, trembling before a holy God. He's speaking about things too high for him. As I was meditating on this, it occurred to me, we've talked recently, somewhat, within the last year, of somebody who trembled at the idea of speaking for God. 
You remember who that might be? Moses. Called to speak for God, and he says, no, I can't do that. Send somebody else. Send somebody more gifted in speech. God says, who made your mouth? Do you think this is dependent upon you? But Moses comes with fear and trembling. So does Isaiah when he's called by God and he says, I'm a man of unclean lips. It's anybody who understands who God is and what his message is will come trembling to speak it. So beware of the person who's really confident in their own delivery. They don't understand what they're talking about. When we come before holy God and eternal things, we ought to tremble, to be fearful, to speak of it. I think it's why, partially, if we're honest, we could say we're afraid at times to share the gospel. Part of that can be fear of man, fear of how others will respond. I think also legitimately a part of that is fear of God. We're speaking of eternal things and we don't feel equipped for it. What if I mess it up? What if I get it wrong? What if I speak of God poorly? We feel like we don't have the power to speak of such things. And here Paul reminds us, that's right. You don't. I don't. And it doesn't matter. We are not speaking by our own power or relying on our own ability. My speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. Here's the secret to Paul's effective gospel communication. It's in the spirit's power. Not in signs and wonders, right? We talked about that last week. The power is demonstrated in words that change lives in words of God that actually transform people and bring them to life. That's the power that Paul is talking about. That's the power that he relies on. That's what he speaks and trusts in so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul doesn't want to do anything that might take away attention from the power of God. I won't, but we could spend the rest of our Sunday morning talking about that. Because I think this verse is dynamite for the church in that it would blow up a lot of ministries. Paul is saying here, quit relying on your own gimmicks and tactics and trusting in your own ability to present. You are not professionals, you're Christians speaking about Christ and the things of God. Do so with fear and trembling, not with trust in your own ability because you're not trying to win people to you. So how often do we think that our tricks and our gimmicks and our education and our eloquence, that's going to be the thing that wins people to God. So that's the things that we rely on. So we put on the light show and the guitar solo and the candles and the compelling delivery, and we train in all these things that accompany our speaking of the gospel, never get around to actually trusting in the speaking of the gospel. And Paul is saying, knock it off. And that's not how I'm doing things. I'm going to speak simply and present the truth so that the truth might not be missed in the midst of the fog of everything else. Very often, things that we think are adding to our presentation actually distract from it. Have you heard the phrase, gilding the lily? To add unnecessary ornamentation to something beautiful in its own right. 
the lily is beautiful on its own. You don't need to add anything to it. It is compelling and attractive as is. Think about it this way. I'm going to make you all hungry. You have a beautiful ice cream sundae. has all that it needs. A little ice cream, some chocolate sauce, whipped cream, a cherry. Good. The more you add on to it, though, the worse it might get. Start adding on strawberry sauce and coconut and gummy bears and red hots and bubble gum, blueberries, oranges, sweet tarts, sour patch kids, all things that are in and of themselves good. And some of you might still be saying, well, I'd try that, and you're weird. But the, the more you add on to it, the worse it gets. It is subtraction by addition. It is like the disciples who looked at the temple and said, Jesus, isn't that beautiful? And Jesus is going to condemn it. It was a wonderful-looking edifice, empty of power and the Spirit. All presentation, no power of God. That is what happens when we think it is our ability to speak, our ability to present, that will make our speech effective. Paul's goal and our goal should be simply just to make it clear and get out of the way. I heard a Christian author say it's probably better than I could. He said it perfectly. Andy Crouch in a podcast I was listening to, he said, it is so hard to believe that the word and the spirit are enough. It really feels like we need to add something extra. When we're out competing with the world and the production of Hollywood and the compelling people, and we think, how do we compete with that? We're simple people. And Paul says, you don't. It's not where the power is. power is in communicating God and his wisdom. It's not with us. And that's what he'll get to. Verses 6 through 12. First Paul focuses on how wisdom must be proclaimed and now he's going to teach on how wisdom must be revealed. How is wisdom revealed? What is wisdom? Just like with proclamation is revealed by the Spirit. Verse 6 says, Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God." So so Paul takes a turn here and he says, in case any of you might think that I'm not about wisdom, I am. We do impart wisdom. 
It says, we do impart wisdom to the mature, among the mature. And by mature, he means those who have the spirit. This whole contrast in, these, in this chapter is going to be between those who have the spirit of God and those who don't. The mature person, the spiritual person, and the natural person. That's what Paul is talking about. He's contrasting those who have the spirit and those who don't. He says, among the mature, amongst those who are growing in Christ, who have the spirit, we do impart wisdom. We're not against wisdom. We're just against a certain kind of wisdom. Paul's against the wisdom of the world, the wisdom of the rulers of this age who are perishing. The wisdom of people in power. Wisdom that leads to death. That's what Paul's against. That wisdom that is devoid of the spirit who brings life. No matter how nice it sounds, no matter how practical it may seem, no matter how much it might make your life feel good or better, any wisdom that detracts from the Spirit, any wisdom that points people away from Jesus Christ, is wisdom that leads to death. Proverbs 14.12 says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. That's the kind of wisdom Paul is talking about, the wisdom that points people away from Jesus Christ and is devoid of the Spirit. But there's another kind of wisdom, a kind of wisdom that doesn't lead to death, but leads to glory, to eternal life. That's the wisdom Paul wants to impart. It says, we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God. There's that mystery language, right? A secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. This wisdom was given to us for eternal life, for resurrection life in the new creation forever. This is a secret and hidden wisdom. Long ago hidden, now revealed in Jesus Christ. God's plan of salvation through the cross of Christ, eternal life in his kingdom. This is the wisdom that God planned long ago and is now revealed. That's the wisdom that Paul imparts. For us who are in Christ, we cherish that wisdom, we love that wisdom, we rest on that wisdom. That's the wisdom that revives and enlivens and animates our hearts. That wisdom that speaks to Jesus and eternal life in him, and forgiveness of sins. There are others, though, and Paul talks about the rulers of this world, the rulers of this age, who do not understand it. If they did understand it, they wouldn't have crucified Jesus in the first place. Paul's saying, this is what the wisdom of the world does. The wisdom of powerful people, the rulers of this age, and by that, I think he's talking about people who are literally in powerful places, like Pilate, I think he's also referencing to the rulers of the air, the spiritual powers that are against God. He's talking about all of them, that whole system opposed to Christ. That wisdom crucified Jesus. And Paul's saying, look at what that kind of worldly wisdom does. It killed the only perfect person who ever lived. Don't trust in that wisdom. That wisdom leads to death. The wisdom of the world is foolish. We need another kind of wisdom, not a man-produced wisdom, but a godly wisdom. That's what he references in his quote. It says here it is written. And this is a tricky thing because this quote, this passage of the Old Testament, actually can't in itself be found in the Old Testament. It seems that Paul has kind of compiled a couple of different verses all together in one. It seems he's referencing Isaiah 64.4 and maybe also Isaiah 65.17. He's taking this Old Testament verse and context and content and rolling it all together. And he says, What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. Here's what that means. Man can't make this up. The wisdom of the gospel 
the message of the gospel, the truth of Jesus Christ, is something that man in his heart did not dream up. He couldn't hear it with his ear. He didn't see it with his eye. It's not man-produced. It's from God. This is God-given wisdom. Here's why we need to know that. Because if it is God-given and not man-given, then we can only know it by God. It has to be revealed by God. It has to be given from him. Karl Barth said, God is known through God alone. God is known through God alone. That in order for us to know this wisdom, because it's not produced in men, it's not fancied up by our own hearts and minds, it's not something we came up with, it is God produced, a mystery that has to be revealed, means it has to be revealed. Somebody has to reveal it to us. That is God. We must know God through God. So let me put it this way. How many of you, when you go to work in the morning, you wake up and you have pets, and then you talk to your pets about your day? Does anybody do that? It's okay, you can admit if you do. Now, as you do that, do you get into details? Like, well, I've got to send this many emails, and then uh, Anna over at the office, she needs to talk about something, I'm not sure if I... And then you go into the details of your day, and then do so anticipating that your pet will understand. All right, I'm not worried if you talk to your pets. I am worried if you think your pets are going to understand what you're saying and respond affirmatively. Oh, yeah, that's really hard. I don't know how you're going to deal with that. That sounds like a challenge. If you're anticipating that kind of give and take, then something's wrong with you. Why? Because we understand there's a barrier of communication. Pets don't fully understand human speech or concepts. There's a gap Now, how much wider the gap in communication between us and God? There is a level of infinity that we can't understand, that we can't search the depths of. Try and understand God. Try and understand the infinite. It's difficult. Let's all take a moment now and think about what you're going to be doing during the 30,000th year of heaven, of your eternal life. 30,000 years down the road when you're just getting started. What are you going to be doing? You start to think about that and you go cross-eyed, right? We can't wrap our heads around that. God is above us, beyond us. There's no way we could search out the depths of who that is. So we need help. And Paul says, that's what the Spirit's role is. This is what the Spirit does. He helps us understand the depths of God because the Spirit searches out the depths of God. The Spirit knows God because the Spirit is God. And the Spirit's role is making the infinite known to people. Because we can't understand God without the Spirit. We can't even understand each other. Paul says, For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person? If you have a loved one or family member, spouse, friend next to you, try right now. Think, what are they thinking about? You can make a general guess what they're thinking about what Aaron just said. But what were they thinking about this morning? What questions do they have as they're driving here? What goes on in their hearts and their minds? If you've been married for a long time, you can take some educated guesses. But you don't really know. And all of us have an inner world that nobody else sees and nobody else is privy to. There is a block there. There's some type of separation. Those who get along in marriage and and those who get along in relationships are able to communicate 
and bridge the gap and reveal what's inside. And they are skilled in that and do that well. That's one of the keys to having a good marriage, right? But it's because there's a gap between people. We don't know what's inside of the other person. We hardly know what's inside of our own selves. We need the spirit or a person's spirit to help because we don't know what's going on in another person's spirit. It's impossible for us to know on our own. Solomon tried to know God and know wisdom on his own, and he said, I said I will be wise, but it was far from me. Solomon, in all of his wisdom, said, I'm going to seek out wisdom, and I failed. I couldn't do it. We need God to know God. Or as you might have heard, it takes one to know one. It takes the Spirit of God to know God. Praise be to God, he gives his spirit. Paul says, now we have not received, or we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. God does not withhold his spirit or withhold himself, but reveals himself through his spirit. I think Paul's point in all of this is trying to communicate to the Corinthians Don't trust in your own wisdom. Don't lean on your own wisdom. Don't lean on the wisdom of this world. If you are to know God, you must have his spirit and it must be given to you as a gift. And if you are given knowledge of God as a gift, you better not be proud about it. Because you didn't do that. That was God's work to reveal it to you. And praise the Lord, he freely gives it. There are some religions and some cults which make you pay for it. If you want more wisdom, you've got to tithe more. You've got to get levels of depth and levels of knowledge. And only the insiders really have it. And Paul's saying the opposite is true with Christ. God freely gives it. It's not something earned. Not something merited, but by grace we have knowledge of God. Because that's the only way it's going to happen. Wisdom must be revealed by God. And third, wisdom must be received by God, by his spirit. Paul talks about verses 13 through 16, how wisdom must be received. And all along the way, that just like with speaking it, with revealing it, Wisdom has to be received by the Spirit of God. Verse 13, we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? but we have the mind of Christ. And really what Paul's all talking about there is how wisdom is received and what kind of person can receive the Spirit of God. We talk about to whom this wisdom is given. He imparts these words of wisdom taught by the Spirit to those who are spiritual. Verse 13 is notoriously difficult to translate. If you look at it, uh, the ESV, I think, translates it well. The Greek is basically the spiritual to spiritual. 
And Paul doesn't define what he means by that. Spiritual what? Explaining spiritual to spiritual. That's all the Greek says. But I think the EFC translates it well because what Paul is getting at here is we talk about spiritual stuff, spiritual content, to spiritual people, people of the Spirit. And he's saying that you have to have the Spirit. You have to be a person of the Spirit, a spiritual person, in order to receive spiritual stuff. That's what he's saying in verse 14. For someone to receive the wisdom of the Spirit of God, to understand the gospel of Christ crucified, they themselves need to have the Spirit. A natural person does not accept the things of God. It's a huge verse in your Bibles to wrap our heads around. What Paul's actually saying here, the natural person does not accept things of God. Why? Is it because the natural person without the spirit, is it because that person is inferior? Is it because that person is stupid? Not as smart as those who have the spirit. Is it because that person somehow just doesn't have the aptitude uh, like we who have the spirit do? is because they don't want to accept the things of God, or even that it's hard to accept the things of God. Why is it that the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit, but the spiritual person does? Paul's answer is, they can't. It's an inability. That somebody who is natural, doesn't have the Spirit, cannot by any means accept the things of God because the Spirit is required. And if the person does not have the God-given Spirit, the grace of God, the Spirit of God upon them and in them to receive the things of God, they can't. It's an inability. There is no possible way for them to do it. It's like an AM radio trying to pick up 5G. It it can't work. You would have to... uh, rewire everything. It needs new internal wiring, processing power, new chips, new internals. You have to change the internals of a thing in order to pick up that message. And that's exactly true with people. God has to change the internals of somebody in order for them to receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. Without the Spirit indwelling, there's no possible way for somebody to receive that message. If things of the Spirit are to be received, the receiver must be made alive by the Spirit. It doesn't matter how well you communicate. And it's why human wisdom can't save people. Because human wisdom can't revive a corpse. We talked about talking to your pets. I encourage you to go home. Talk to your fridge. Now, maybe you have a smart fridge. It'll go better for you. But, but if you have just a normal old school fridge, go and talk to it and say, make me dinner. And just talk to things in your kitchen, inanimate things in your kitchen, and say, make me food. When that doesn't work, you won't say to yourself, I think the problem is with me. I've got to develop better speech. If I can just say it more compelling, maybe the fridge will come alive and make me food. None of us would have that thought process Because we all know that at that point, the problem isn't with us. It's that we're speaking to an inanimate object that is dead. And that is what you're doing when you're sharing the gospel. When you're talking of the things of Jesus Christ to a person who doesn't have the spirit, you're talking to a dead thing. And no amount of your brilliance is going to change that. What has to happen? The person has to be made alive by the spirit. 
And that's what the Spirit does. He changes the receiver so that the receiver can receive the message. That's what Jesus' ministry is all about. It's why he goes around making dead things alive, giving sight to blind, causing the deaf to hear, actually reviving people. Jesus goes around by the power of the Spirit, bringing dead things to life, giving them capacity to follow. And that's what the Spirit does. That's what Paul's talking about here. The Spirit has to be present for somebody to receive it. If they don't have the Spirit, and that is God's work, not ours, there's nothing you can do. So we rest and trust totally in the grace of God to make gospel ministry effective. We depend on Him to bring things to life. And then, when the Spirit does do that, when the Holy Spirit indwells a person and animates them and makes them alive, then they know all things. That's what Paul's talking about. They can receive and judge all things. It's Paul's point in verse 15. The spiritual person can judge all things. He kind of makes a play on words with the word judge because judge it can mean a bunch of different things. It can mean like condemn, judge, or it can mean assess, evaluate, understand, know. And Paul's playing with that and he says, the spiritual person judges all things, meaning the spiritual person is able to assess all things, i.e. the spiritual person can know God. At the same time, the spiritual person is judged by no one. What Paul's saying there, that person who has the Spirit will not be condemned by the world, will not be judged by the world because that person will not be known by the world and they won't understand you. Paul's saying all those things there, I think wrapped up in that phrase. The world can't condemn you, which is a good thing because the world won't understand you. The world is not able to judge or assess or discern the spiritual person. So, a word of caution and encouragement. If you're a person of the Spirit this morning, the world will not understand you. It won't have the same values, won't see with the same lens. Because when you were made alive in the Spirit, you're given a different set of eyes and ears. But take heart. The world doesn't understand God either. And no one can instruct God. No one is wiser than him. Who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? God is above all things. And the final encouragement, we have the mind of Christ. The world may not understand us, but the world cannot condemn us. And we, by the grace of God and by the Spirit, do understand God because we've been given the mind of Jesus Christ. And Paul says that not arrogantly, but humbly. It's a gift given to have the mind of Christ. As we close here, I just want to encourage you to rest in the mind of Christ. Take comfort in, rest in the intellectual security you have in Jesus Christ. What I mean by that is that the world all around, over and over, will make you feel very stupid for believing in Jesus. The world in its wisdom will try to get you to hate your enemies rather than love them. 
The world will teach you that wisdom is trusting in your own heart. While God's wisdom tells you the heart can be deceitful and to place authority in his word. The world will teach you to fight for yourself rather than laying down your life for another, which is the love of God. The world will tell you that wisdom is pursuing your passions, fulfilling your desires, seeking your own pleasure. Well, God will teach you that to have true joy is to find life in him. The world will teach you that the path to success is promoting yourself, being your advocate. Scripture will teach you you need a different advocate and to trust in God and his spirit. As you live this life, there will be times when that world that is opposed to Jesus Christ will weigh on you and want you to think a different way. And Paul says, rest in the mind of Christ. You have the mind of Christ and trust in him and his spirit. And go out into the world with the wisdom of the cross. We're dependent upon God and his spirit. I commission you, my charge to you, to rest in his power, his spirit, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. That's how God's wisdom is proclaimed, revealed, received by powerless people. It's by the power of the Spirit. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray that you would rewire us. And we know you already have in Jesus Christ. For those of us who are in Christ, who do have his Spirit, Lord, I, I thank you that you have changed us because we needed changing, not because we are so wonderful, but because we are so desperate and lost and helpless without you. So we thank you for your grace and your kindness upon us. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to speak in a way that is totally dependent upon you, not upon our own brilliance, that we would uh, proclaim the gospel out in the world and, and be a light for the good news of Jesus Christ, freely given. And we would do that by your power, by your spirit, not trusting in our own capacity, not trying to live up to standards we could never live up to, but recognizing that you are a gracious God. And Lord, I do pray that if there's anybody here who does not have your spirit, who does not know Jesus Christ and does not have the wisdom of God, Lord, I pray that you would revive hearts, cause them to want to know you as you are truly revealed in Jesus Christ, cause them and cause all of us to want to know your wisdom which is shown to us in the cross of Christ that God laid down his life for his people. Lord, we repent of any trust in ourselves and praise you that we can rest in the power of your spirit. Amen.